0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Norman Hill, the author, with Velma Murphy Hill, of Climbing the Rough Side of the Mountain, the Extraordinary Story of Love, Civil Rights, and Labor Activism. In Climbing the Rough Side of the Mountain, Norman Hill and his wife Velma Murphy Hill let readers in on a profound conversation as they shared their earliest memories of facing racial segregation in the 1960s, working with Martin Luther King Jr., Bayard Rustin, and A. Philip Randolph, crossing paths with Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael. They also reveal how they kept white supremacists like David Duke from taking office, organized workers into unions, met with Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, and continued to work tirelessly, fighting the good fight and successfully challenging power with truth. Norman Hill was the National Program Director of the Congress of Racial Equality, Staff Coordinator for the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, Staff Representative of the Industrial Union Department of the AFL-CIO, and president of the A. Philip Randolph Institute from 1980 to 2004, the longest tenure in the organization's history. He remains its president emeritus. Norman Hill, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Uh, So before I start with uh, our discussion today, I just want to give our listeners a small taste of what they will find in this absolute treasure of a book. Uh, And I'm going to summarize the chapter where uh, Mrs. Hill who is not able to join us today, introduces herself. Uh, Velma was, in her own words, a black girl from the ghetto. But let me just catalog some of what happens to her in this early chapter. Uh, As a little girl growing up on the south side of Chicago, she meets Paul Robeson in her mother's home. And while she offers some rather trenchant observations of Robeson's politics, it is still an astonishing early experience. Later, still hardly more than a child, she attends a house party at a neighbor's home where Harry Belafonte sings for the guests in the living room. Uh, Velma then accepts a scholarship to Northern Illinois University to study speech and political science. And I have to point out that as an NIU grad myself in communication, this was especially exciting for me to learn about. Uh, She then transfers to Roosevelt University where she finds herself riding an elevator with Eleanor Roosevelt. Finally, while working at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, she finds Malcolm X scowling at the proceedings and offers just a delightful rebuke to his suggestion regarding what she should be doing with her time. Uh, By my estimate, this all takes place in maybe the first third of the book, and and I don't have a question in all of that except to say this is just an extraordinary story. So, Mr. Hill, uh, I'll ask usually I, I start these discussions with the following question what compelled you to write this book now
1: well we felt that it was timely in terms of the movement being the civil rights movement being at a crossroads uh our mentor by rustin wrote an article called from protest to politics in which he was suggesting not that protests be abandoned wherever there was an injustice, but that the problems facing Blacks were not merely racial, but economic and social. And as such, they required a major allocation of the country's resources, not just fair employment, but full employment and decent livable wages, not just integrated housing, but quality, affordable housing not just integrated education, but quality education maximizing the learning potential, particularly in blacks, but of all students. And that these economic and social problems could not be addressed by a single demonstration or protest, but required a major allocation of the country's resources. And that meant engaging in political action, electing a president in the Congress that was committed to spend taxpayer dollars to address these economic and social problems. And Blacks, he said, should aggressively and militantly engage in political action, voter registration, voter education, getting out the vote, and should do so in such a way as to maximize their friends and minimize their enemies. He pointed out that a key ally that had a program that paralleled the economic and social needs of blacks was the labor movement, addressing the needs of the have nots and have littles and working people generally. And so we felt it was timely to talk about the civil rights histories as we had experienced it and bring it up to date with a focus on political action, which we think is current and relevant
0: today. You point this out, I think, in the epilogue, and I think it's a little bit in the introduction as well. But when we remember the civil rights movement today, it's almost bathed in a kind of nostalgia, and you, I think, make the point in your work that it's still live and active today, and it's not just these sort of sepia-toned um, images we have from yesteryear.
1: I think it is it is still very much alive. And uh, we face, uh, in a climate in which there's been uh, reactionary, reactionary response, we have a Supreme Court that, for example, gutted the Voting Rights Act in 1965, which was designed to address the problems of voting discrimination, particularly in the South. And we see uh, today these problems uh, being focused on and the movement uh, addressing, because the the provision where there had to be clearance of voting procedural changes and, and voting districting uh, to be in, with, in those states that had a history of discrimination to be cleared by the Justice Department. But that, that provision was gutted in a weekend out of the uh, out of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and we need political action to overcome and reinstate that section of the, of the Voting Rights Act. That means electing a Congress and a president that's committed to, in fact, doing that. And so the movement faces clear cha- challenges today. Uh, we also face uh, the problem of of generating jobs, jobs in a climate in which the economy is, in fact, growing and experiencing serious job creation. We have to make sure that those jobs are expanded and developed in such a way as they benefit uh the blacks especially who are living in in areas of poverty and so i would suggest that the movement just continues to be alive and relevant and in fact
0: very much in need today so one of the really beautiful things about this book is is that it is both the story of your relationship with mrs hill as well as the story of your lives lived in the civil rights and labor movements. So let's go back to where the love story started. Tell us a little bit about desegregating Rainbow Beach in Chicago. Uh,
1: I met I met Velma, who was introduced to me by my my brother. We were. We were participating in a picket line in front of Woolworth store in Chicago. In support of Southern students who were sitting in pressing for the integration of World War Store lunch counters. And uh she said that I probably hadn't had a home cooked meal in a while, and that she was inviting me to have dinner at, at her home, which I did. Uh that was the beginning a relationship. That led to that led to my coming to speak at the Southside Chicago National Association for the Advancement of Colored People Youth Council, of which Velma was the president. The Youth Council uh, being inspired by the example of Southern students who were sitting in and pressing for integration of lunch counters and other public facilities. Um who had a general sense of change internationally as Africans pressed to, to get to lift the yoke of colonialism and fight for independence. So when Velma and the members of the NAACP Youth Council learned that black Couples had been driven off the South Side Chicago Rainbow Beach by white gangs. Decided to, in fact, challenge the situation and organize an integrated group of waiters to go to the beach, use, use the facilities of the beach and challenge the the situation. I I joined Velma, participated in the wait-ins, and was able to get a student from the University of Chicago to join the wait We We um, went to the beach, uh, played checkers and chess, and generally participated in the facilities of the beach uh, where there were women and children generally enjoying the beach. All of a sudden, the beach grew quiet. The women and children left the beach and we decided that we ought to begin to leave the beach. But as we began to gather our belongings, we were confronted by a white racist gang we threw stones, rocks, and bricks at us as we proceeded to leave the beach. Velma was hit on the head by a brick, suffering a 17-stitch wound. I can't, as she bled from the wound, I carried her to safety, uh, just off the beach. We, uh, went to the hospital where Velma had her wound stitched and vowed, while welcoming Velma as she came out of the treatment room, vowed that we would return to the beach until it was desegregated, which we did. And in the course of doing so, we were joined by church activists, civil rights groups, unions and others and and went to the beach every Saturday until with the police presence, the gang was dispersed, blacks could use the beach without incident. And so that was the that was the end soon after the wait in led by Velma at Rainbow Beach, uh We got married, the wait-in took place in late August of 1960, we got married September 15th of that year, 1960, which is the beginning of a long relationship of love, civil rights and labor activism. Uh, we, uh, we, We launched a career that in which now our marriage is going on into its 64th year and we in fact uh continue these days writing occasionally speaking attending conferences as as we as we continue our involvement In the movement for racial equality and economic justice.
0: So, um, we've already discussed a little of Velma's life uh, from the chapter about it. Uh, But the chapter on your own upbringing is a fascinating story in its own right. Was there something in your early life that you think led you to this life of service in the civil rights and labor movements?
1: Well, after I, after I, served in the army, having been drafted for two years. In the summer of 1958, I was invited to a youth conference where I heard for the first time Bayard Rustin speak about about civil rights. I was impressed by his charisma, his analytical ability, his his militancy. And he took some of us who were attending the youth conference to meet with A. Philip Randolph, the country's most outstanding black labor leader and father of the civil rights movement. Uh, I listened as A. Philip Randolph and Bob Rustin discussed organizing a youth march for integrated schools to press for the implementation of the 1954 Supreme Court decision that said that separate was no longer equal and call for the integration of public education. Uh, I went on to begun graduate work at the University of Chicago School of Social Work and heard, and Bard came to speak that that the winter of 58, 1958, 1959, to Chicago. He, he talked about uh, Ian Randolph organizing a second youth march to take place in the spring of 1959. Again, impressed uh, by what the Byron had to say, I came up to him after the conclusion of his presentation and said, what can I do to help? He said, organize Chicago. Well, I had never done anything like that before, but I responded to his challenge. And through contacts with, with friends who are active in the Chicago branch of the National Association with the Against the Color People, I undertake to recruit youth, high school and college youth, uh, to go by bus from Chicago to Washington D.C. for the Second Youth March. I was referred to the leadership of the United Packing House Workers of America. Their district union office was on the south side of Chicago, and they gave me a telephone in an office, and I used that as a base of operation to try to meet and speak to youth groups, high school and college. That was the beginning in the process of which I dropped out of graduate school, never never completing my my master's degree and that was the beginning of my full my involvement in the civil rights movement. Uh, much to my surprise, uh April Pandolph and Rustin uh, provided a plane ticket for me to to fly to Washington DC a day ahead of the march, the youth march, where were they told me that I was to speak again, uh, much to my surprise. So I spoke to an assembly of some 10,000 youth at the Youth March for Integrated Schools in the spring of 1959. That was the beginning of my involvement in in civil rights. After that, wherever A. Philip Handel from Plot and Rustin large-stake civil rights campaign, they would they would arrange to get me involved in some way. The, the March on Convention movement in 1960, when I was the co-coordinator of the march and demonstration at the Republican convention in Chicago, to press for a strong civil rights plank in their party platform to 1963, when I'm the staff coordinator of the Great March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where 250,000 people, black and white, marched on the nation's capital, helping to create the climate that led to the passage of the Magna Carta of the the Civil Rights Movement, the voting the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965.
0: So you've already raised the, the two names that I want to talk about. Um, one of the great pleasures in reading this book is the way that historical figures come alive um, and seem to speak to us all over again. Uh, and there are two in particular who, who you've already talked about, but I want to give you an opportunity to say a little bit more. Um, the first, of course, is A. Philip Randolph. Uh, And I know that this is probably an almost impossibly broad question, um, but he is a name that I'm not sure that a lot of people, it's not a household name for many people. Um, What would you like us to know or what should we know about A. Philip Randolph today?
1: A. Philip Randolph was the nation's greatest Black labor leader. He uh, founded the most historically significant union for Black workers, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, porters sleeping car porters who served passengers who rode long distance overnight trains. The founding meeting of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the name of the union, took place in Harlem in New York City in 1925. They were taking on one of the most powerful Companies in American corporate life, at that time, the Pullman Company, who was adamantly opposed to the unionization of its workers. A. Philip Randolph led, that, led the campaign to organize and unionize the sleeping car porters. A sleeping group of sleeping car porters came to him, asking him to lead them in their challenge to organize a union they had two things in mind. First, they had heard A. Philip Randolph speak at street corner meetings, rallies, and debates, articulating the needs of workers, particularly black workers. Secondly, they knew that A. Philip Randolph himself was not a sleeping car porter and therefore could not be directly pressured or intimidated by the Pullman Company. Overcoming 12 years of threats, harassment, <laughs> and firings, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, under Randolph's world leadership, gained union recognition in 1937, negotiating a collective bargaining agreement, bettering their wages and hours and working conditions. But Randolph also utilized his union base to mount civil rights campaigns and challenges. In 1941, he was concerned that Black workers, because they were Black, could not get jobs in defense plants and munitions industries. And so he called for a march of 100,000 Negroes on the nation's capital to protest this reality. The president of the United States in 1941 was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was adamantly opposed to the march, fearing that it would lead to violence, and in fact polarize and tear the country apart as he was beginning to unify the country in anticipation of engaging in a world war. Randolph resisted all of President Roosevelt's entreaties to call off the march when his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, considered more sympathetic to civil rights and the mayor of the city in which Randolph was residing, Mayor LaGuardia, pressed him to call off the march. Randolph continued to organize the march, saying the problem about which they were marching was not being addressed. Finally, there was this face-to-face meeting between Randolph, other civil rights leaders, and President Roosevelt in the White House. Roosevelt said to Randolph, Will you march against the government of the United States, implying that Randolph was disloyal and not patriotic. Keeping in mind, this is 1941, Randolph said we have no alternative but to march. Because when it comes to discrimination, the government itself is one of the, the one of the worst offenders. Finally seeing how serious and determined Randolph was, Roosevelt did what no other president had done. He issued an executive order, 8802, the first few drafts of which Randolph rejected as being too weak. Randolph finally accepted the order, which did three things. It said wherever a firm or company had a federal contract, there was to be no discrimination said there was to be no discrimination in the federal civil service and the commission was created to oversee the order only then did randolph call off the march randolph was not only a dedicated committed effective union leader but also a civil rights leader and he led campaign after campaign continuing in 1948 with the Byrd Rustin having served as a youth coordinator of the 41 March in 1948 a Philip Randolph and Byrd Rustin called for a boycott of the armed forces urging young blacks and sympathetic whites to resist and and boycott the selective service and of draft that was then in place uh in relationship to the armed services, their boycott was one of the key factors that led to President Truman issuing another executive order in 1948, desegregating the armed forces, Executive Order 9981. Uh, they, they launched the March on Conventions movement in 1960 after leading youth marches for integrated schools in the fall of 1958 and the spring of 1959. Pressing in the 1960s at the major party conventions were a strong civil rights plank in their platforms. Perhaps the peak, the highlight of Randolph and Bollard Rustin's civil rights career came in 1963 when Randolph said it's time to march again, referring to 1941, concerned about continued discrimination, blacks' experience in employment, the lack of economic opportunity randolph called for the march realizing that two things were different from 1941 first his union the brotherhood of sleeping car porters was in decline the railroad owners had made a decision that they could make more money increase their profits by carrying freight as opposed to passengers and cut back on the number of long distance overnight trains, which meant less jobs for sleeping car porters, less mem- members in Randolph's union. Second, unlike 41, when Randolph was the premier civil rights leader, there were other civil rights leaders playing key roles in the movement. And so being concerned about the scale and scope of the projected 63 March, Randolph convened the meeting of five other civil rights leaders, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, Whitney Young of the National Urban League, Martin Luther King Jr. of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, James Farmer of the Congress of Racial Equality, and John Lewis of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They agreed that there ought to be a march, but unlike Randolph's original call for March for Jobs, they said the march ought to be about jobs and freedom to unify their concern. I served as staff coordinator for the march and was a member of the planning committee for the march, appointed by Randolph that included Brian Rustin, deputy director and chief organizer of the march, Tom Conner, the executive director of the League Demo- for Democracy, my wife, Velma, and myself and we had originally given Randolph, after deliberating, a two-part program. The first day to be made up of sit-ins by civil rights activists in congressional offices of elected officials who were opposed and reluctant to support civil rights legislation. The second day to be a gigantic march. Well, the leaders agreed with Randolph that there ought to be a march. And so this time, The march of my serving as staff coordinator took place with 250,000 people Black and white marching on the nation's capital. This is a story of a a great civil rights leader, a tremendously effective union leader, and a great American, A. Philip Randolph.
0: It it really is, uh, again, an astonishing story, and and again, A. Philip Randolph, a name that uh really more people need to recognize uh, for his contributions to to everything in our country today. Um, I want to read really quickly, with your permission, uh, from one of Velma's sections in the book um, about another person I want to ask you about. Uh, she begins, There were serious times when the march was coming together, but Norman and I remember some fun times, too. Baird had such a great sense of humor— I remember him telling us a story about how he got on the phone to call Dr. King about something key to the march and decided to conduct the whole call in the voice of Mr. Randolph, because he could. He's talking in that deep, rumbling voice and doing a convincing job of it. Then Bayard gets off the phone and says, Ain't this a bitch? That was somebody on the phone imitating King while I was on the phone imitating Randolph. Tell me a little about Bayard Rustin. do
1: Rustin was a unique figure. He was one who played a bes- behind the scenes role in, this, in the civil rights movement. As a master strategist and tactician, he was A. Philip Randolph's most outstanding colleague. Byrd Rustin was arrested over 20 times in the struggle for racial equality. He, he shared with A. Philip Randolph basic operating principles as they mounted campaign after campaign civil rights wise. First, Byron was committed to a society in which racial equality and economic justice would prevail. He believed that blacks could make the most progress by simultaneously confronting the barriers of race and class. Second, in the pursuit of racial equality and economic justice he adopted a majoritarian strategy utilizing coalition politics, a majoritarian strategy in which he believed that Blacks ought to aggressively and militantly pursue racial equality and economic justice, but ought to do so in such a way as to maximize friends and minimize enemies and generate non-majority support, aggressively and militantly pursuing Racial equality, but doing so nonviolently. He thought, like Randolph, that they ought to pursue it. Racial equality, economic justice. He realized in coalition politics, with the core, the essence of the coalition being an alliance between the trade union movement and the civil rights movement, a partnership between organized labor and the black community. He put it this way in his. In, in the early part, part of his activities, there were pitiful few Blacks who were millionaires. Not very many more Blacks who owned or man, managed large businesses. Blacks who, they were employed were employed as working people, working for somebody, someone, some firm, some company, some organization, some institution, and being the most oppressed of workers. They had a direct economic burden by the stake in participating in that movement that's about improving the lives of working people, namely the trade union movement. Third, Biden was committed to self-liberation. By that, he meant that any group that is mistreated, that is oppressed, that experiences unfairness, that is treated unjustly, that is discriminated against, should take the initiative to challenge the unfair and unjust Said it's going to find themselves. In short, he said, if you don't fight for yourselves, who will? Fourth, Biden was committed to mass action. By that, he meant the march, the protest, the picket line, the boycott. Some means by which those who had the problem, regardless of how much money they had, no matter what the level of education was, no matter what their economic and social status, could with their allies engage in action to challenge key decision-makers? And fifth, Biden was committed to nonviolence. By that, he did not mean passive non-resistance, but the use of nonviolence is an integral part of mass direct action. Biden was, an, was openly gay and did, therefore Tactically and strategically uh, was pressed to play a behind-the-scenes role in the movement. But the turning point was his leadership and organization of the 1963 March on Washington, which catapulted into national leadership, and he became a prominent civil rights leader. And as I said earlier, a master strategist and tactician uh, of the movement. Uh, a. Philip Randolph and Bayard Rustin were two giant figures in the civil rights movement. Each received the highest civilian medal, the Medal of Freedom. A. Philip Randolph by President Leonard Johnson and Bayard Rustin posthumously by Barack Obama. They are, they are forever a an integral part of the history of the civil rights movement.
0: So we've been alluding to this throughout our conversation. Uh, Your reminiscences of the March on Washington for jobs and freedom is so rich in detail concerning the politics and the personalities involved. Again, this is another one of those questions. It's probably too big, but what would you like our listeners to Take away from that moment in our nation's history.
1: What I would like listeners to take away from the discussion of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom is that the march was was not just about pressing for racial equality, but the march had an economic dimension. It called for a national jobs program. To put all the unemployed, black and white, to work at meaningful jobs at livable wages. It called for a national minimum wage for all workers at a livable level. It called for the inclusion of all workers, in this case, particularly agricultural and, and domestic workers, in the fair labor status act governing the that would include the me, coverage of the minimum wage and overtime provisions and i would like to remember that the march had an economic dimension and whose whose demands are still relevant in today i also think it's important that one understand that the march reflected a coalition. The March Policy Committee included all the major civil rights organizations, included a labor leader, and included religious leaders, a key Protestant leader, a key Catholic leader, and a key Jewish leader. And that, that coalition expanded to include other minorities, to include women, to include the lesbian, gay, bisexual community uh, is important, is necessary to develop a majority to to press today in the continuing relevance of the need for racial equality and economic justice.
0: There's a moment in this book that I want to ask about uh, at one point you describe dr king as being almost frustratingly deliberative in his decision making except for one moment uh that you describe in the book tell our listeners about the conversation that took place in the home of andrew young with dr king
1: yes uh martin luther king in a informal meeting involving uh his key assistant andrew young uh, Velma herself, Byron Rustin, and a few others. Martin Luther King indicated that he felt a need to take the movement that he was leading to Chicago, that it was time that the movement to go go, go north under his leadership. Uh, Byron Rustin counted with the fact that This was shortly after, this is after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, when great numbers of Blacks in the South were becoming a part of the political process, were able to register and vote as never before, and that he believed that Martin King's role was to Coordinate and lead the massive involvement of blacks in the political process, and in fact, to so that they could maximize their impact in in the politics of the South and press for racial equality and economic justice. And that there, therefore, King was very much needed at this critical point. In the civil rights movement to, to, to continue to lead the movement in the South. King said, however, that he believed there is a call to Chicago that had him, had a mission, in fact, had a message from and a mission and a call from the Almighty to go North. Uh, put, put this way. It was is it, it was very difficult for for King to for King to be challenged uh I had tried to point out that it, the Chicago situation involving blacks was different from the South. Blacks were active politically. Blacks were engaged in the politics of Chicago and had some and had positions that were part of the daily machine yeah. and that he would find it difficult yeah. to resist yeah. or, and they find it difficult to get the same uh, un- uh, unity of response that he had generated in southern campaigns. This Again, was uh, the again reflected uh, Martin Luther King's uh, approach, and so he, in fact, went to Chicago in 1966 uh, with uh, with ambivalent with with uh, and encountered racism and violence. As he moved for integrated housing in the suburbs of Chicago, he was confronted by uh, violence and the throwing of rocks and bridges. As he marched, rocks, and stones. As he marched, uh, he found it difficult to, in fact, uh, mount a unified mount a unified campaign, uh, whereas. Uh, there was blacks were were involved in and in a part of the city political machine uh, led by Mayor Daley, so that uh, uh, whereas Martin Luther King Jr. had courage, he had perseverance. He was able to, in fact, lead and even be jailed. Uh, confronting racial barriers in the South, he found a very difficult and and lack of comparability in, in the North.
0: And, of course, we should also point out, you were in Memphis when Dr. King marched with striking sanitation workers. Yes, in
1: fact, I had gone to Memphis as a leader of the Randolph Institute to work with the staff of the American Federation of State County Municipals Union, Mission Employees Union, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to organize community support for striking sanitation workers. Martin Luther King Jr. came to Memphis to lend his prestige and leadership to the campaign. I helped organize a march to City Hall in support of the striking sanitation workers Led by King, youth participants in the march broke discipline and threw stones and rocks at store windows and began to loot. Police tear gassed the march, and Martin Luther King turned the march back to its point of origin. Depressed by the fact that for the first time a march under his leadership endured a breakdown in discipline, I joined the staff in persuading Martin Luther King to lead a second youth march pointing out that this was basically a trade union struggle and that we would recruit union leaders and increase the the labor presence to help maintain discipline in a second march. Martin Luther King became convinced and began to lead the organizing of another march when he was shockingly and tragically assassinated. We decided to continue the organizing of of the march as a memorial to King, as well as in support of striking sanitation workers. The march took place, and the sanitation workers gained union, eventually gained union recognition, negotiating a collective bargaining agreement, and their wages, hours, and working conditions. But it, it was it was so all this took place after the tragic and shocking assassination of martin luther king and the the loss of the movement's greatest moral leader and i
0: I should point out um that this book is written very much as a dialogue between you and mrs hill um though some sections are written more or less uh independently uh I'm not sure how much you want to talk about some of her work, um, but I, I really do want to ask about Mrs. Hill's work with Al Shanker and the United Federation of Teachers, um, and, and especially her efforts to in the campaign to organize paraprofessionals in uh, the education system of the city of New York. Um, as someone who's involved in uh, the labor movement myself, and, and especially in education, um, this was a, a truly inspiring story. I, I'm not sure if um, you feel comfortable discussing it. I would like very much to. Oh, very good.
1: Noma, uh, after working in one of the New York City public elementary schools as a paraprofessional, joined the staff of the United Federation of Teachers under the leadership of President Al Shanker. She became the lead organizer in an effort to unionize and organize 10,000 mostly black and Hispanic welfare eligible women into the United Federation of Teachers. Uh, They were able, she as the prime organizer was able to recruit and convince paraprofessionals to join the United Federation of Teachers and become union members along with the public school teachers. Uh, What is significant is that Velma played a key role in negotiating for, by, and with paraprofessionals with the city Board of Education committing the Board of Education to initiate a career ladder program with the board paying for the education of paraprofessionals to to become and qualify as teachers thus further integrating the public school teaching staff in New York City. Velma was able to do this in spite of some community opposition to the united federation of teachers and after a strike by the united federation of teachers uh over the question of the firing of some of its members by the by the by a community school board in brooklyn and and the lack of and the lack of due process. This this created a strain between the black community and the teachers union. But Velma, in spite of that, in spite of that situation, was able to to convince paraprofessionals professionals that it was in their economics, bread and butter self interest to join the union of te- of, um, of public school teachers in New York City and that they, they, their effort to better themselves economically was more likely if they were part of the, of the union of teachers and in fact had that added leverage with the Board of Education uh, which turned out to be in fact true and there are paraprofessionals who have become teachers, some cases principals, uh, through the career ladder program uh, committed by the Board of Education uh, in response to uh, Velma's key negotiating role in, in pressing the board of education would make that commitment, uh, but Velma's uh, role in the labor movement did not stop there. She became the first black to hold dual positions of civil rights and international affairs director for a major union, the Service Employees International Union, and she traveled throughout Africa, the Caribbean, and Asia initiating programs with trade union to train trade unions in, in how to run and maintain a union, how to, how to negotiate effectively with management, and how to, st- how to establish an effective and meaningful grievance procedure. Uh, she, in addition, prior to her involvement in the labor movement, she was a key civil rights activist uh serving as east coast field secretary for the Congress of Racial Equality. And uh, she was the she led demonstrations against the Bill and Trade Unions pressing for the integration of their apprenticeship programs. Uh, and o- to overcome their, re- their resistance to welcome Blacks into their apprenticeship programs. She is an indication of her dedication and perseverance. Uh, She, while leading a demonstration in in front of Harlem Hospital in Manhattan in New York City, uh, a lieutenant of Malcolm X uh, came to her saying that Malcolm would like to speak to her so she went to meet with Malcolm on the side of the demonstration and he said to her that her role was that that she was forsaking what was her basic role which was to to be to be in the home with her husband carrying out homemaking responsibilities and uh Velma said to Malcolm that she would consider that if he if he if he took a picket sign and joined the demonstration uh, uh Malcolm laughed and shrugged that off but and Velma went back to the picket line uh she she has been a dedicated committed civil rights activist and labor leader for over six decades and continues to be active today uh, writing and speaking, uh, uh, writing columns for the Labor and Black Press on on key issues of the day and, and speaking at civil rights conferences and meetings. I think throughout our all, Velma has been a love, partner, friend, and comrade as we have engaged in civil rights and labor activism. In the, and in fact, through our experience and activities have become the only black couple, the hold leadership positions in the trade union and civil rights movements.
0: Uh-huh. On a personal note, again, I understand that Mrs. Hill can't be with us, but um, I want to offer—please i, I would please extend to her my thanks uh, in the book for the story she recounts of her meeting with A. Philip Randolph while she was negotiating um, for the first contract for paraprofessionals, and especially the what I think is fair to call the parable about the stone cutter. Um, I, I'm the chief negotiator here uh at Oakland University in our contract talks with the administration. And uh please let her know that I'm going to be holding that story very closely throughout the summer.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, um the parable for the stone cutter, I I might and with, about the stone cutter, I might share. Sure. Velma uh was working to try to keep the paraprofessionals unified and sometimes there were strains uh, between the Blacks and Hispanics, Blacks and Whites. And uh, she labored long and hard and uh, feeling under stress, she went, went to see A. Philip Randolph Uh, Her mentor and Randolph shared with her the parable of the stonecutter. The stonecutter was pounding away at a rock, trying to break, trying to break and split the rock. And he kept pounding and pounding, and the rock would not give. Finally, on the hundred and first blow, he was able to split the rock and break it apart. But he realized. That it was not the hundred and first blow that did it, but the the accumulation of all the blows that that he had struck before in and that. Therefore, it was worth all these these strain and uh strain efforts efforts to hammer away at 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 the rock and. A. Philip Randolph was saying to Velma that she ought to think of herself as a stonecutter to lead and maintain unified paraprofessionals in their confrontation with the Board of Education and their struggles to maintain an effective union relationship. Uh, That's that's in brief the parable of the stonecutter and in the, in the rock that he was trying to break.
0: Well, as I said, it, it's something that I'm going to hold close to me as uh, uh, we talk to our administrators this summer. So as we come to the, the end of our time together today, uh, I typically ask my guests about their next project. Uh, but as I read the epilogue of Climbing the Rough Side of the Mountain, I see it less as a summary and more of an invitation to further the work that you and Mrs. Hill have begun. Um, again, it it's a chapter that is just so rich. Um, are there any things from it that you would like to highlight for us as we as we part today?
1: Well, one of the things that we'd like like to promote and encourage is an exchange and a relationship between veterans of the civil rights movement and and young leaders that are that are emerging in in which there is a, of the energy and vitality of young leaders are meshed with the experience and know-how of veterans of the civil rights movement. And to the degree that we can facilitate such a meaningful exchange, and in fact, uh, in so doing strengthen the movement that's one of the things that that we we want to be about. Uh, secondly, we are concerned that that uh, that there be an aggressive, meaningful focus on politics and political action, especially with the emergence of a right-wing movement encompassing white supremacists and white nationalists. That we need to to have an aggressive militant coalition that it's a majority of forces that stands up to, confronts and addresses the reactionary backward challenge of the right wing in, 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 a, in a movement that in fact, effectively confronts them and organizes against their reactionary thrust, and we see a commitment to democracy, which, in fact, the civil rights movement has been about, not just racial equality, but it's an extension of democracy, and that they maintain the use of democratic principles, and to, in fact, maintain and sustain and and the effectiveness of a movement and that, that 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 and we intend to play a role in helping to maintain that thrust, especially in today's climate.
0: Well, Norman Hill, uh, I just want to thank, offer you my sincerest thanks today. Uh, thank you for this book. Thank you for your dedication to making this world a better place. And most of all, thank you for taking the time to talk today. Thank you. I welcome and
1: appreciate the opportunity. Uh,
0: And while I'm offering thanks, I also want to extend my thanks to Louise Crawford. Um, If you're a regular listener of the New Books Network, you should know that the interviews you hear uh, are facilitated by publicists who provide hosts with books and often arrange introductions with authors. And Louise Crawford has really gone above and beyond to make this interview happen today. And for that, I am profoundly grateful. Once again, my guest today has been Norman Hill, the author with Velma Murphy Hill of Climbing the Rough Side of the Mountain, the Extraordinary Story of Love, Civil Rights, and Labor Activism. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to The New Books Network.